Last night I had a dream that left me in a cold sweat. Picture this. I'm on a long par four. I strike my drive. I've got 145 in. I think I can step out an eight iron. I can do this. Flush the eight iron. I'm watching the ball. It looks beautiful heading to the green. And it lands 15 yards short of the green. I didn't realize it was uphill and there was a stiff wind above the trees blowing back at me. My friends look at me like I'm an idiot. I go home. My wife leaves me because of it. My boss hears about it. He fires me. Within a week, I'm on the street screaming, why didn't I have a caddy? I need a caddy. And I woke up yelling that word caddy. Okay, look, we all know the advantage of a caddy on the course, but what about a caddy for your business? That's right. The real world, the business world is no different. Good news for you, folks. Belay has your back. B-E-L-A-Y. They pair busy leaders, business owners, and entrepreneurs with high-quality U.S.-based executive assistants to help you prioritize your time, delegate the details you don't want to deal with, and focus on what matters most. That's Belay. And right now, Belay is offering our listeners 25% off the first month of their executive assistant subscription. All you have to do, text the word GOLF, G-O-L-F, to 55123 to schedule a call. Or visit belaysolutions.com slash golf digest to get started today. Folks, this is really, really worth your time. I want you to do more of what you love and less of what you don't with a Belay executive assistant. I want to put you in a hypothetical place and time in history. I want you to go in your mind to 1932. Hollywood, California. This is in the heart of the Great Depression, but the movie industry is doing just fine. People had to give up a lot across the country. By and large, they did not give up movies. So there's plenty of money to be made in Hollywood, plenty of rich people, plenty of huge stars. So put yourself there, 1932, and let's say your ambition as a person, as you as you move to this great, big, gleaming city of gold, your ambition is to, at a minimum ingratiate yourself with high society. You want to become close with the rich and famous. You want to run in those circles. Not to be an actor necessarily, just to kind of be a character within that world. And among the gifts you have that can possibly get you there, you've got a pretty charming personality. You're funny. People like being around you. That's all well and good. But you have something that might be even more valuable, which is that you are an incredible golfer. As in, you're the kind of golfer who can go out to Riviera, you can break the course record, you can come close. You are someone who plays a game that is decades ahead of its time. You know, it's predicated on great distance and a very precise short game. So you're playing a bomb and gouge style that people really haven't seen yet. But beyond all that, you're a mystery. Nobody knows your background. Nobody knows where you got your money. If indeed you have money, you're not telling anybody. You're about 30 years old. And you basically seem to have been dropped out of a clear blue sky. And you see this world, you see Hollywood, you know, it attracted you there in the first place and you want in. What is your first move? Well, as you may have gathered, this is not a hypothetical scenario. In fact, it is the origin story of a man called John Montague. And today we're going to tell the story of Montague with a major assist from Lee Montville, author of the book, the Mysterious Montague, A True Tale of Hollywood Golf and Armed Robbery. Montville, you may know, he was a Sports Illustrated writer. I was reading him all the time when I was a kid. He came out of Boston, and he was so taken with the story of Montague that 70 years later, in 2008, he wrote a book about him. And it's a very interesting book, the kind that's almost 
more interesting for what it doesn't reveal as much as what it does. We'll get into all that. And I have to confess, even now as I'm recording this podcast, which by the way, I should say it's called Local Knowledge. I'm Shane Ryan. There you go. I still don't think I've decided what the most fascinating part of this story is. You know, it's this classic American rise and fall story. Somebody making himself from scratch, basically kind of inventing himself, running away from his past is very much like the great Gatsby. And I know that may be kind of a, you know, cliche comparison to make, but you read about this guy and it's impossible not to think of Gatsby the entire time. It's just glaring. This is a West Coast version of Jay Gatsby. And it's interesting. You know, I noticed Montville never once used the word Gatsby in his entire book. Not once. And I have to think that's a conscious choice. Maybe it was, you know, too easy, too glib a comparison to make. But I did find it curious that he never did that. So back to that question. 1932 Hollywood, Montague shows up. What was his first move? Well, here's the weird thing about it. It's almost like he didn't really have to plan anything. All he had to do was show up and play golf, and that's what he did. You know, at the start, he played public courses around L.A. and Hollywood, um, you know, places like Rancho Santa Fe, you might have heard of that, places with names like Sunset Fields. He played a course called Western Avenue, where it was mostly black golfers who played at that time. You know, he just made the scene everywhere. And he was so good and his personality was so big that slowly but surely his name got around. That's the simple version of the story. Now, you should understand this guy was a major self-promoter. It was in his DNA. You know, he would do trick shots. He would hit the ball off trees. And even when he wasn't showing off, you know, doing trick shots and that kind of stuff, his game was just astounding. You know, it was enough to show off all by itself. This is a man who was unbelievably strong. So even when he wasn't playing uh, golf, he'd be around these courses and he would do things like, you know, he'd lift people up, you know, big people, or he'd lift up cars. He'd perform these sort of feats of strength like he was a circus strongman. This is somebody who would play money games where he'd let his opponent retake a shot until they liked it over and over again. And there's not a ton of documentation about these early days, but it's enough to say the man's name spread, his reputation spread. You know, he even, even the clubs he used, he swung a driver with this oversized head. You know, might not look oversized today, but for the time, it was this huge, big, massive driver head. And the club itself was apparently so heavy that almost nobody else could wield it effectively. He let them try, they'd barely be able to swing it, they'd spray it everywhere. He's the only guy who can control this, and he's hitting, you know, 300 plus yard drives. So the first person to discover him was Richard Arlen, a guy who had been a World War I fighter pilot from Canada, a sports writer, eventually came to Hollywood, uh, and he went from being a motorcycle messenger to an Academy Award-winning actor. It was a stunning rise, but kind of a classic story. Hollywood is full of them. So now this guy, Richard Arlen, who you know kind of came from nowhere, just like Montague, he was rich and famous, making 200 grand a year. Needless to say, that's you know a lot of money back then. A lot of money today, but back then, 1932, it's like, you know, making millions. And he was also a four handicap who, like Montague, played everywhere in LA. He would hit all the public courses. He had some private courses. But anyway, he met Montague. They became friends. You know, the story goes, and Arlen would defend the story for years, but they played at a nine-hole course in Palm Springs where they made the loop twice. They did this four rounds in a row, and Montague's scores with him were 61, 61, 61, 59. And so he tells the story, you know, everywhere at the time. It raises a lot of eyebrows. 
pretty soon other people are talking about him too. Everybody wanted to see him. You know, Hollywood, all the rich and famous, they're full of golfers. So Arlen started inviting him to some of the private clubs. Now, this is part of the story you think of as the dizzying rise of John Montague. And it's predicated on a couple things. First, his golf game, obviously. Second, the sort of legend that's growing around this guy already, which is based on stuff off the golf course, just as much as it is everything that happens on it. You know, there's stories going around. He goes out at night to Wiltshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills, hits golf balls down the Long Avenue. Uh, story that he got in a traffic dispute, got so mad that he ripped out the other guy's steering wheel. You know, there's rumors that he barely sleeps. You can kind of see as these start to accumulate, he's already becoming a mythical figure. But there's something else that I think is very important, which is that he seems to have a lot of money. Every time anyone's around him, he's got wads of bills. There are rumors that maybe he owns a silver mine of some kind in the desert. You know, none of this is ever confirmed, but there is this perception that he's independently wealthy, which I have to think matters a lot to those guys because it means, you know, he doesn't want anything from him. He doesn't need anything from him. And when you're rich and famous, you know, people are constantly asking for things from you. That is a pretty valuable quality to have in a stranger. Opens some doors, doesn't it? So, Arlen invites him to play. People love this guy. He's fun to be around. He's a total jock. And by 1933, he is already a member at this private course called Lakeside Golf Club, which is home to people like Johnny Weissmuller, who was Tarzan, you know, Oliver Hardy of Laurel and Hardy fame, Douglas Fairbanks, Howard Hughes, who might have been the richest man in the world. You know, people like Humphrey Bogart, who wasn't a member, but he played there a lot. And remember, these were still the early days when we're talking about these guys, especially the actors, of this kind of widespread fame, this concept of being famous for being in movies. You, know, you think, who would the famous people have been before this? You know, presidents, writers, maybe criminals. But this more visible fame, where you're broadcast to people you know, all over the country via movie theaters, it's only possible with the advent of movies. It hadn't been going on for that long. And it was a big novelty, and these guys were the very first beneficiaries. America loved them. And a lot of them were like Montague. You know, they kind of had these strange backgrounds. Came to Hollywood, they would invent their past or they would hide their past. They were strange people. Most of them had taken big risks just to be there. And Lakeside Golf Club, as a result, was a wild place full of characters. People drank a lot. They joked a lot. It wasn't the least bit stuffy. I mean, just to give you an example, they had a guy named Vince Barnett who was a member uh, who when people visited, he would pose as a caddy or a waiter, you know, and for every, all his friends entertainment, he would mess with the visitors, you know, up, up to and including Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill came and he would, you know, he pretended to be a waiter and he kind of razzed him all night and people, people loved it. And, you know, even Churchill loved it because you go into this and it's, it's like a zoo, right? That's what it sounds like, but a very fun zoo. So maybe, you know, one of the most unique American golf clubs, probably in our history, and it ended up being the perfect place for John Montague. You know, this guy, some of the qualities he had, that fearless sort of charisma, the masculinity, the golf game that everybody envied. And also, you know, what he had going for him in a more subtle way is that he didn't force himself on people. Even though he's this big, big figure, he understood how not to be overwhelming. Now, as you can imagine, all these actors, all these producers, everybody, they all had egos. And he could manage to be someone of, you know, a notorious figure, 
but he could also cater to them. He could also kind of make himself not small, but he could fit in very well. And he wasn't a womanizer either. And he wasn't going to get caught hitting on someone's wife, which is a big deal. <laughs> it's bigger than you think. Within this world, he had a certain instinct for self-preservation, which, you know, that, that the fact of me saying that, the fact that that's true, is going to become ironic when you consider the overarching narrative of his life. Well, we'll get there. So he becomes good friends with some very famous people. Again, you know, Gatsby-like in this sense. Richard Arlen becomes his friend. Johnny Weissmuller becomes his friend. Oliver Hardy, Laurel and Hardy comedian, becomes such a good friend that Montague actually lives with him for a while. And they have this running gag, Hardy and Montague, in the clubhouse where Montague will lift Hardy up. Hardy's a very big guy. He lifts him up with one arm as if Hardy's light as a feather, sets him down on the bar, and people are dumbfounded the first time they see it. And the ones who have already seen it still find it hilarious. So popular guy, John Montague, you get it. These stories grow. And, you know, to tell this John Montague story, you, you kind of, I don't know if it gets repetitive. I don't think it gets repetitive, but you have to sort of understand the legend through the stories. That's one of the, you know, the facets of this thing. So they kind of, you know, the details keep pouring in. Like Oliver Hardy tells about the time, you know, he forgot his tie when the two of them went out to dinner. Maitre D wouldn't let him in. So Montague tears his own tie in half, gives the other half to Hardy. They both put it on. They go eat dinner. One time on a fishing trip with the comedian Guy Kibbe, Montague saved a drowning woman's life by lifting her out of the water at arm's length with one hand. And he had to do that to keep their own rowboat from capsizing. You know, he once lifted a car so a fisherman could get his rod out from where it was stuck underneath. You know, we talked about a traffic dispute earlier where he ripped a steering wheel out. Another one, he's with Johnny Weissmuller. Another driver starts yelling at them about being cut off. Montague gets out of his car lifts the guy's car up into the air, drops it, the headlight breaks. Man is completely terrified, and, you know, Montague tells him to buzz off. At one point, he wrestled at Lakeside a character actor named George Bancroft. Bancroft was famous at the time, you know, big guy, kind of always played a villain in the movies. Montague stuffed him into a locker, upside down, some stories say. And it's not clear if they were wrestling, if it you know, was adversarial or if it was a fun thing or what. But Bancroft had to, you know, beg to get out of the locker. And the golf stories continued too. You know, he hit a ball into a hammock on a balcony across the street, called a shot, knocked a bird off a wire with a shot from hundreds of yards away, broke the course record at both courses at Fox Hills Country Club on the same day, 64 followed by a 63, won two grand in the process, you know, birdie eight of 11 holes at Riviera. Goes on and on. More and more people wanted to play with him. And every time anyone played with him, they all came away completely astounded. But the two biggest names in this Montague story were yet to come. The first of them was Bing Crosby. College dropout from Spokane, who became you know, the most famous singer in the entire country. You know, even today, some of these guys I'm mentioning, you probably don't know their names anymore. At least I didn't. Bing Crosby, everybody knows. You know his voice. And if you're a golf fan, you know he was the man who eventually started the Crosby Clambake, which became the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, still going today. He was another lakeside guy. Two inevitably met, and they quickly hit it off. And Montague's roster as famous friends, which is already impressive, is now getting close to absurd. And one day, he was playing with Crosby. You know, Crosby's a good golfer. You know, he gave him a bunch of strokes, though. But that day, Montague beat him. And in the clubhouse afterward, Crosby was complaining, you know, didn't get enough strokes. 
And Montague told him, look, I could beat you with a baseball bat, a shovel, and a rake. Everybody's intrigued. This is the kind of stuff they love. He says, let's do it. Five bucks a hole. And of course, Montague being Montague, guess what he had in his car? He had a baseball bat, a shovel, and a rake. Obviously, he kept them there for a reason. So Crosby accepts the bet. They go out to the 10th hole. Montague hits a golf ball with a fungo bat into a green sign bunker, something, you know, 300 yards away. Shovels out from the trap to 12 feet and sinks that putt using the rake as a pool cue. Crosby, meanwhile, playing the hole pretty well. He makes par, but he loses the hole to birdie. He says, you know, enough is enough. We're not going to keep doing this. And just like that, Montague has what instantly became the most famous story of his entire career, of his entire life, really. This is the one, you know, this story beating Bing Crosby with a bat, a shovel, and a rake that is irresistible. It's timeless. You know, and to fast forward, you know, in this book by Montville, decades later, when everybody's forgotten Montague, when he's an old man, you know, he's still doing photos, posing, holding these implements, holding the rake, holding the baseball bat. It becomes that defining for him. It becomes the hallmark of his legend. And you can imagine how this story spreads, right? This is, you know, it's incredible. If you heard this story, you know, Imagine back then, we don't have the internet, we don't have many distractions. Wouldn't you tell everybody? It goes through Hollywood, sort of like wildfire, through the golfing community anyway. Now, at the same time with Montague, covered all these crazy stories, but there are some strange things going on with this guy. At the start, there is no publicity around him, because why would there be? He's just some guy. But it's interesting to people, the ones who know him, that even though he's this good, he never enters any tournaments. Why not? Clay Montville makes a good point, which is that, you know, Hollywood could understand him being strange, having a murky background. All that was okay. They have it too. What they couldn't understand was not having ambition. Because everybody there, it's Hollywood. Everybody there is ambitious. Everybody is on the make. Except this guy, seemingly. You know, he would always say, well, I golf for other reasons. You know, Montague won the club championship at Lakeside in 1933. But other than that, he would not compete anywhere. Even when he played Riviera for fun, you know, that this day where he makes 8 of 11 birdies, he was a par away on number 18 from shooting 61, which would have set the course record at this obviously incredibly famous course. According to everybody there, he purposely hit the ball into the trees and told his caddy to pick it up. Their day was over. For some reason, he didn't want to break that record. You know, even when you know, his name started getting out more and someone, you know, some people tried to take his picture, some press people, he would actually take the film from them. He'd give them a little bit of money to compensate them, but he would take that film, did not want that film to get out into the world. So you're getting the picture that, obviously, this guy wanted to keep a low profile. Kind of. You, know, you have to qualify that. Because if you want to keep a low profile, you know, you don't have to become friends with the most famous people in the country and really the entire world. You can go live in a cabin in the woods somewhere. But when his act, when, you know, after he gets what he wants with, you know, the association with these people, when his act threatens to spill over into a public realm, he really takes these big steps to avoid that. And he does manage to avoid it, at least for a while. Man who changed all that was the most famous sports writer alive, maybe the most famous sports writer still today who has ever existed, Grantland Rice. Grantland Rice was known to every sports fan at this time. You know, we're not going to go into his full legend, but suffice it to say, he made more money than most even major athletes. 
different time and place, obviously. <laughs> I can tell you firsthand, sports writers do not compete with athlete salaries anymore. But by this point, the 1930s, other writers, or maybe some element of you know discerning sports culture, was already starting to see Grantland Rice as a little bit corny. You know, his poetic style and his way of sort of worshiping athletes was a great fit for the optimism of the Roaring Twenties, but it wore thin when the Depression came and a more cynical kind of style became predominant everywhere in American life, but also in sports writing. But still, even then, you know, he's past age 50 at this point. He was a big deal. His words are going out across the country to, you know, millions of readers every day. He's a household name if you're a sports fan. And he had a daughter who was trying to break into the film industry. So he and his wife would spend two months in Los Angeles every year. He was a big golfer himself. You know, he made all the scenes. He played Lakeside. He played all these other courses. One thing led to another. And of course, he meets John Montague. And like everybody else, but to an even greater degree, Grantland Rice is smitten. I don't know if there's a better word for it. You know, he couldn't get enough of this guy. Immediately thought of him as one of the best golfers he had ever seen. He witnessed that round at Riviera, told you about where he almost broke the course record before he called it quits on the 18th hole. Grantland Rice was there. And Rice is the guy, different from the actors, right? Different from everybody else who knows Montague. He's a writer. What he does is write. He tells stories. And he just couldn't contain himself. You know, imagine imagine if you were a sports writer. I'm trying to put myself there. And you see this guy who you think might be the best golfer in the world. It'd be hard not to write about him, I think, wouldn't it? So in January 1935, again, it's about three years after Montague arrives in Hollywood. He just has to write about him, and he does. His column on January 18th, it's dedicated to John Montague, which is really something. Think about that. This national writer who can write about any athlete and does, but chooses to dedicate an entire column to this guy who is a, you know, amateur golfer, but doesn't even play tournaments in, in California. So this is kind of weird in and of itself. And you can get a sense of the column and what he's saying from this line. Quote, I have played several rounds with John Montague in California and I'll take him as an even bet against any golfer you can name over a championship course, end quote. Pretty definitive there. And the rest of the column is repeating the legend that up until that point had been a spoken legend, you know, an oral story, not a written one. He talked about his famous rounds, said he was maybe the longest hitter in the world. He repeats this idea that he seems to have mining interests in Arizona, and he gets him on record saying that, you know, tournaments don't interest him. Montague says that quote again that we did earlier, quote, I like golf for other things. So this article comes out. For a while, nothing happened. But almost two years later, late 1936, a man named Westbrook Pegler, another columnist, he brought the story out again. He quoted a number of unnamed sources. Probably they were all Grantland Rice, but basically they're repeating how otherworldly Montague is at golf repeated the Bing Crosby story, and he kind of gets into the mysterious persona more than Rice had. Rice was kind of focused on the exploits on the golf course. Pegler talks about the man, and that's a big step, right, because that's going to intrigue people. Time Magazine sees it. They decide they have to write their own piece about him. They even got a photo of him by sort of tricky methods. You know, they weren't good photos. They didn't show his face, but they did get a photo, and that's when things started happening quickly. He was supposed to play in Crosby's Pro-Am at Rancho Santa Fe. Backed out at the final moment. Montague didn't play. 
which, you know, at this time, was a weird story, but the AP columnist who was there to cover it, he wanted to know if he was going to play. He waited for hours. He kept getting drunk, you know, just columnist was drinking. At some point, the indecisiveness of it, he's screaming at him, are you going to play? He actually throws a punch at him, which Montague dodges and it hits somebody else who's, you know, behind him. And it's this whole brouhaha. But at this point, as you can imagine, legend is growing to a crazy degree now. It's being written about. Not only people in California, people across the country know the name. And they're wondering, like, who is this guy? And inevitably, there starts to be a backlash. You know, people coming out saying, actually, I know this guy. He's not that good. I played with him. He's fine. He's nothing special. And, you know, there are articles in places like the New York Telegram and the Sun kind of casting doubt on the legend. You know, it just shows you how far this is reaching. Uh, once you have people arguing about whether it's legitimate, the mystery only heightens. Similar piece comes out in Sports Illustrated, you know, saying, eh, we don't know about this guy. But then his defenders would come back. They would battle back these writers. They would say, you haven't played with him. I have. Listen to what happened when I played with him. And on and on it went. By 1937, Grantland Rice is kind of seeing some of this backlash. He's now feeling defensive because he's the first guy who obviously brought this man's name into the public. He wrote about him again saying, look, when I first wrote about him, you know, he's a different man. He's gained a little bit of weight since then. Not quite as dedicated as he used to be. Not quite as long anymore. But he's still out there shooting 70s on hard courses. Give the guy a break. And he gets Bing Crosby and Oliver Hardy and all the friends to back him up with quotes in the piece. And finally, by June 1937, things have reached such a crazy fever pitch. Sports Illustrated writes a piece that they titled An Appeal to Mr. Montague, basically begging him to play. You know, saying, just play in one tournament. Let us get a look at you. See if you're as good as everyone says you are. And if Montague, this man who would go so far as to spoil a great round, not to get his name in the paper, you know, who would, who would take film out of a photographer's camera, if he didn't want his name getting out to the wider world, well, too late. It's out. And pretty soon the world would find out exactly why he was so afraid of publicity. John Cosart was a New York State police inspector in a town called Oneida. Over the years, he had worked on a case of a robbery in upstate New York, which happened, in fact, very close to the part of the world I grew up in, in the Adirondack Mountains, a town called Osable Forks, which has these beautiful gorges. It's a tourist attraction. It's way up in the mountains. In terms of remoteness and weather, this area is probably the closest thing we have in America to, you know, a Siberia type place. It is somewhat isolated still today. You know, it's somewhat different still today. And back in the 20s and 30s, you can only imagine it was about as small as small gets. But even then, it was a popular summer destination for people from parts south, particularly rich people, New York, Boston, because the nature out there, the outdoors is so beautiful when it's not freezing cold which it is, by the way, for about six months of the year. This is why I live in North Carolina. So in August 1930 in that town, Osable, a man named Kin Hanna ran a restaurant with his wife and his children. And his father-in-law, the wife's father, lived with him as well. Now, Hanna was a very interesting figure. He was born in Japan. He was a cabin boy on an ocean liner bound for Alaska. Got sick when they were in Alaska. Got left behind in Alaska. And he decided then, he's about 16, 17 years old, he was going to learn English as best he could, and he was going to stay in the U.S. Worked his way all the way across the United States, 
all the way to upstate New York, which is not quite as far as you can go, but pretty close. He was a houseboy for a wealthy family in Alsable. They liked him. They liked his work ethic, and they sent him to cooking school in Boston. And that's how he came to run his business in a part of the world where at that time he may have legitimately been, this is not an exaggeration, he may have been the only Asian man living in the entire Adirondacks. It's a big region, right? That's the entire upstate. It's not 100% certain, but I can tell you it can't be far off. It's not an incredibly diverse place today. Back then, you can imagine. Ken Hanna was a success. He married a local woman. He had kids. It was all going well. He was liked in the community. Put up with his share of racism, of course, but generally seemed to be accepted, which is no small feat in that part of the world in that, you know, that day and age. Now, this was in 1930, the era of Prohibition, and the Adirondacks featured quite heavily in Prohibition because they were situated between Canada, where booze was legal, and everywhere else, New York City, Boston, places where it wasn't, where people wanted booze. It would be no surprise that a bootlegger culture quickly developed. There was money to be made. You know, Members of my family, going way back, were apparently involved in that. And like many business owners, Ken Hanna was in on it buy liquor from him you know he may have let bootleggers use his place as a storehouse he was arrested twice for that and again none of that is uncommon for somebody in his position it was also known apparently at least by some confidants or close family members that he kept a lot of cash on hand he didn't trust banks and it's that confluence of events that led four men in august 1930 to wait for the last customers to leave and then to stage a robbery and one of these four men was his nephew they walked in, they found his wife, Elizabeth, and one of his workers. They tied them up. Ken Hanna came out, you know, he resisted briefly. They tied him up too, took the cash that he had on him, you know, got his wife to open up the safe by threatening her. Their daughter, Naomi, woke up, you know, she was tied up. They left her on the floor. Soon the other kids followed suit. They tied them all up. There was one person left unaccounted for, and that was the father-in-law, a man named Matt Cobb. Already an old man at this point. One gunman went to find him. But he didn't count on this old man being as strong and agile as he proved to be. Cobb pulled down the gunman's mask. He started hitting him. The guy didn't want to shoot him, so Cobb was actually starting to win the fight when the robber calls out, Vern! This man named Vern came in. He cracked the old man on the head with a revolver. Almost knocked him out cold. Certainly startled him. Tied him up. Left him on the bed. They went back to the safe. Took what they could. They were moving so fast by that point that they actually missed some money in the back of the safe, some gold coins, and then they took off. But as they left, the grandfather, Matt Cobb, had woken up, gotten out of his binds, climbed out of the bedroom window, practically ran right into the fourth gunman who was guarding the car. He was still dazed, Cobb, so you know the gunman says, get out of there, go back to the other side of the house. He listened to him, but he ran right back into this guy, Vern, who had beat him over the head with the gun. And they fought again. No, it's not clear Cobb even wanted to fight this time. But this guy, Vern, the gunman, started beating him over the head with a garden hose, which was filled with buckshot and bolts, beat him until he was basically silent. And in the meantime, you know, in this fight, they rolled down a riverbank. The gunman got back up and they left. They left the old man, Cobb, bleeding unconscious by the riverside. They picked up a second car, and this car, driven by William Carlton and John Sherry, was flagged by troopers. You know, who are always at, you know, when it's at night in this area, they're always on the lookout at this point in history for bootleggers speeding south from Canada. They chased them for a few miles. 
when John Sherry, one of the criminals, had this brilliant idea, I'm going to turn off the headlights. He's the passenger, and the cops, you know, the idea is the cops wouldn't be able to see them. The problem was the driver, William Carlton, could no longer see anything. He missed a turn in the road. He drove off a culvert near the river. Car rolled over. And by the time the cops got there, John Sherry, who turned off the lights, was dead. Somehow, Carlton was only bruised, but he's very dazed. They found all the money they had taken, $630. They found two guns. But to their surprise, they found no alcohol, because that's what they were looking for. Thought the car was going to be full of it. So what's going on here? Elizabeth Hanna, Ken Hanna's wife, freed herself in the meantime. She called the cops, identified Carlton. When he was brought to her, the cops brought her in. They you know, put two and two together. But Carlton wouldn't talk. Matt Cobb, the grandfather, had regained consciousness, but he couldn't hear very well. His teeth had been knocked out. But he was coherent enough to tell them that one of the missing robbers was Roger Norton, a cousin of his, who had eaten at the restaurant a few days earlier. I said nephew, but, you know, they, he called him Uncle Matt. I mean, it's take the relations for what they were. So anyway, the police put out this, you know, this call for Roger Norton. Norton hears about it. He turns himself in. And in fact, his car had been stopped that night. Norton was in a different getaway car. His car had been stopped that night. But he and his passenger, 26-year-old man named Laverne Moore. This is the Vern who had beaten up Matt Cobb so badly that he lost his teeth. And in fact, his hearing was gone and he'd have hearing problems the rest of his life from this. But Moore, who was calling himself Lawrence Ryan to this cop, he and Norton talked themselves out of it. They were pretty smooth, apparently. And it's their luck that in the other car, you know, police had found Laverne Moore's driver's license, his draft registration card, newspaper clippings he kept of himself, and a set of golf clubs. Now, I say it was his luck. It was his luck in terms of getting away at that moment. But having found all this stuff would obviously implicate him in it. So by the time they went to question Moore, this was five days after the robbery, you know, having gotten all the evidence from the other car, he was no longer in his Syracuse home. Mother told the cops, I have no idea. I don't know where he's gone. And he stayed missing. Laverne Moore was somebody who had been involved with bootlegging for some time. You know, he grew up in Syracuse which in terms of American cities is about as different as you can get from Hollywood. It is a gritty, cold place. It's hard scrabble. You know, it's like Pittsburgh, but with even less blue-collar glamour, I would say. You know, Moore's father worked in the steel industry. His mother was Irish. They lived in an ethnic Irish neighborhood called Tipperary Hill. Moore was the family's second child. He had an older brother. He had two younger sisters. And he stood out early on for his energy and especially for his athletic ability, but he was also something of a bully. You know, he would lock people in schoolrooms if somebody left a key out. He would pick up old men in his car, you know, offer them a ride if they were waiting at the bus stop, and then he'd leave them on the side of the road far from their destination, or he'd scare them by driving too fast. He got in plenty of fights, got in trouble with the law, but he was also a standout athlete. He played football, basketball, baseball, you know, even played a little bit of minor league baseball, talked himself into a tryout with John McGraw of the New York Giants. There's these stories that come out of Syracuse. He hit the longest home run that had ever been seen in his hometown. You know, he once struck out 18 players as a high schooler against the Syracuse freshman team. And he took up as a kid and excelled at golf. Not only was he good at the game, but he became a trick shot artist. And when somebody asked him how he did something remarkable, like, you know, doing the kind of things like points out a car at a great distance and would hit it 
You know, kids say, how did you do that? And he had an answer for them. He had a kind of second identity that he would use, and one would come in handy when he fled New York after almost beating an old man to death. It would come in useful when he landed in Hollywood and became the most infamous golfer in America. And what he would tell the other kids in Syracuse is, I am the mighty Montague. So, you see where this is going. You probably did 10 minutes ago. Laverne Moore was Montague. It's an incredible transformation for somebody who clearly was never going to keep a very low profile in life. You know, and this, what he became in Hollywood, it's the kind of thing that makes you wonder if he was always destined to be famous in some way. And what I find myself thinking as we tell the story is the same thing I was thinking as I read Montville's book, which is that you get all these details and they're big details, but what the story lacks is a look at the man, especially about what it's like to be in his presence. I don't know, this is a little far flung here, but I don't know if you've ever read Robert Carroll's biography of LBJ. It's one of the best nonfiction books ever written. It's actually a series of books, but it is meticulously detailed. But what you come away with at each moment is a sense of LBJ's presence, how intimidating he was, how powerful, right down to how he would you know, talk to people and sort of loom over them. He would get close and he would, almost like a, like a hawk leaning forward, would kind of force these people to lean back. He would dominate the space. And when he wanted to be, how charming he could be, how much he could be your friend. And it lets you understand how he was able to pull off what he did, which, you know, to be a a Southern senator, one of the good old boys who somehow passed the Civil Rights Act. So what I find in the Montague story is that you get a lot of, here's what he did. Oh, he lifted this guy up or he made a putt with a pool cue, et cetera. But you don't get a sense of what I have to imagine was an incredible amount of personal charisma. You know, you hear people say, oh, he was a great guy to be around, but that's about as deep as it goes. You know, but these stories of him as a kid, even a lot of the stuff in California, a lot of it comes off like bullying. Like this is a person you wouldn't like. And on paper it is, but it's obvious that he had something in him, some kind of, I don't know if it's joie de vivre or magnetism or whatever, but it attracts people despite this, despite something you read and go, wow, what a jerk. You know, if he was a snarling, sullen guy and pulled off some of this stuff, people would resent him. They wouldn't like him. They wouldn't want him around. But they did want him around. And what I find myself wanting is some kind of firsthand account of that presence. And this is not, by the way, a knock on Montville. You know, you can't compare a subject like John Montague to LBJ. Obviously, for an American president, there are a lot more accounts firsthand than some guy, you know, who's barely a public figure. But caught myself looking at the pictures of him this book and trying to imagine what it was like to be in the same room with him. And you can't quite do it. Can't quite do it. Doesn't work that way. Some of these photos, he looks a little bit like if you've seen, Oh brother, where art thou? The actor who plays George Babyface Nelson, you know, like a a smaller Babe Ruth almost. Who's going to enter the story by the way, of course, in others, he looks to have a harder edge. You can see the toughness in him. Like he's a, you know, a mafia Don or something. But none of it conveys the inner spirit. Photos don't do that. And that's what remains the great mystery here. Now, what was he like? Was he a sociopath? You know, to some degree, you have to think maybe. Sociopaths can kind of take on different personalities. They can be very charming. Their lack of morals can make them appealing in a, in a weird paradoxical way. They're pretty exciting people. That would be my guess for Montague, is he's a kind of sociopath. And I just wanted to mention this element because it's the one I wish I could give you, but can't. It's just not on the record in this case. So got to use your imagination a little bit. But 
Back to John Cosart, police officer who had been working this robbery. He comes across these articles about this mysterious Montague, this golfer in California. They are eye-opening. And what's funny about it is that Cosart had long told his colleagues that, you know, knowing what he knew about Moore's past, if they ever caught this guy, probably going to be from the sports pages. You know, as in he's so talented that if he ever took up some serious competition in any way, someone was going to write about him eventually. And here you go. The funny thing also is afterward they talked to people who knew him in Syracuse, who grew up with him, Laverne Moore, a.k.a. John Montague. And they had read these stories too. They had read Grantland Rice, Sports Illustrated. They read about him, and they remembered Moore calling himself Montague. You know, and these were friends, you know, who had known him again. And they'd say to each other, I bet that's I bet that's Laverne Moore out there. I bet John Montague is Laverne Moore. It's got to be him. They knew it. You know, didn't tell the police, but they knew it. There were probably dozens of people in Syracuse who had already made the connection. But finally, Cosart did. Sent the clippings to an inspector who was working in Malone, New York. And, you know, said something to the effect of, you know, we've got the son of a bitch now. So... You know, they sent a note to the LAPD. Fingerprints, you know, were on file. They matched. And in July 1937, almost seven full years after the crime, five years probably after he moved to Hollywood, John Montague was arrested. When he was in jail, he admitted his name was Laverne Moore, that he was from Syracuse. And when he made bail, with help from some of his friends, he told reporters, quote, I made a mistake when I was just a kid back east and I've been trying to make good since then, end quote. In other words, he basically admits his guilt, which, by the way, his future lawyers will wish he hadn't done that, and they'll tell him, don't do it again, don't say anything more. Now, there is one element of what happens next that is incredibly interesting to me, and one element that, you know, I could do that. I'm not, I'm not that interested in. You may disagree, you, and you may be right to disagree. You may feel, in fact, the exact opposite of what I feel, but... The interesting thing to me is that all his friends in Hollywood supported him. Right from the get-go, there is not one indication that any of them felt betrayed, that they felt lied to, or that they had even, you know, a remote resentment to this guy. They circled the wagons immediately. Everybody from Bing Crosby to Oliver Hardy had nothing but good things to say about him. And if anything, this solved a mystery in their minds. Why won't he compete? Well, of course, he's not competing because any notoriety he gets... He's going right back to jail. So you could delve into the psychology and say, well, you know, these people, they come from their own strange backgrounds, in some cases, shady backgrounds. They make a career of playing other people, of, you know, being somebody else on stage. These are the first uber famous entertainers with this level of visible fame in world history. No exaggeration. They probably feel like imposters too, to some degree. So they're not going to disown this guy, you know, simply for having robbed a bank, you know, robbed a store, beat an old man into submission. They stand by him completely. Bing Crosby even phoned up a New York lawyer, managed to get him to represent him. Now, here is where I may deviate from popular opinion. The court case that followed, I don't find it interesting at all. Montville writes about it very thoroughly. It's not boring. It's not boring, but what it is, is a complete farce. No other way to put it. You know, you've got a clever, sort of bombastic, you know, very highly presentational lawyer. Gets a client who is obviously guilty. Manages to sow some doubt here and there. 
based on what I see as circumstantial nonsense, right? The, the fundamental truth is this guy did it. Everybody knows he did it. They got his mother to testify that he was actually home that night in Syracuse. Again, obviously wrong, obviously nonsense, and a hillbilly jury, I can say that because I'm from there, being a little starstruck and eventually letting him off. Now, that's a short version. I am sailing over huge parts of the story, huge parts. Some people would argue court case is the most important part. Again, not to me. It is the legal system at its worst. It's probably, you know, my home area at its worst. Love my home area. Love the Adirondacks. This is them at their most provincial. A lot of the details are disheartening. You know, Ken Hanna, the Asian owner of the place that got robbed, he got on the stand. He couldn't speak very good English. The old man, Matt Cobb, who had been beaten by Moore, he could no longer hear. So it was a complete debacle when they tried to get him on the stand. The lawyers have to basically scream in his ear. You know, he's he doesn't kind of know where he is, that kind of thing. Uh, the daughters who had been tied up, they were there at the courtroom. They had to watch all this play out. They had to watch the guy who did this get off. Courthouse is full of gawkers. You know, we're attracted by the Hollywood story. This is a big deal in the press. And the defense knew how to manipulate things. These were very good lawyers, and they did so successfully. To me, it's bad stuff all around. And the judge, even when he heard the verdict, when they let him off, the judge looked at the jury and he told them he thought they made the wrong decision, which obviously they had, right? And in terms of the letter of the law, anyway. There's only one part of the whole thing, you know, if you root for accountability at all, if you're not starstruck by Montague and his friends the way the jury was, the only part of this legal story that gives you a thrill comes in the bail hearing early on when the DA, who actually did a good job by most accounts, you know, he wasn't overwhelmed. He, you know, he did the best he could. It wasn't his fault he lost. But there's this big celebrity atmosphere at the start. This is one of the first days that everybody's in court. Montague's kind of smiling through it all. You know, he's you know big star. They're discussing bail. And the DA comes up and he says, quote, an old man, then 67, offered some resistance. And the defendant beat him over the head and face with a pistol. After throwing the old man to the ground, he called for a blackjack and beat against him on the head and face, left him on the bank of the Osable River in a dazed and semi-conscious condition. End quote. And he goes on to say, Mr. Noonan, which is Montague's defense lawyer, says his client wants to face the charge, but it has taken him seven years to make up his mind to do it, and then only after this defendant had opposed extradition for months. End quote. And at that point, there's kind of a hush in the crowd. The smile is wiped off Montague's face. He realizes what he's up against. And that whatever friends he's made, whatever status he has accumulated, may not protect him when it comes to paying his price to the law. But then it does. It does protect him. It's not a great story unless your thesis is that the justice system is inherently unequal, protects rich people, and punishes poor people, in which case, this is Exhibit A. John Montague, which would become his legal name after this, he changed it was free by October. And when he goes free, there is great excitement about him among his friends. You know, Bing Crosby says, thinks the guy is going to make a million dollars. Incredible amount in those days. There is rumors of a business deal with Crosby's brother, who is a big player in Hollywood, a businessman. You know, the talk is Montague might be in films, probably going to make all kinds of money from golf, right? And during the whole trial ordeal, He'd actually got a round of golf and in between some of these things. And with a lot of public eyes on him, he shot a 65. People wrote about that. So there was talk again, all these offers. But first, 
in November, he was going to play an 18-hole exhibition scheduled in New York with Babe Diedrichson. You know, some people think she is the greatest woman athlete of all time. Helen Hicks, one of the founders of the LPGA, big-time pro. You know, she was actually replaced at the last minute, but she was on the billing. And maybe the most famous athlete in America, well, almost definitely the most famous, Babe Ruth. They were going to do this, this foursome. And funnily enough, you know, the one guy beforehand sounding a sort of cautious note was the man who brought him into the spotlight in the first place, Grantland Rice. Rice wrote a column before this exhibition, and it sort of praised him. You know, Rice was always praising him. But there's a warning in there. It's subtle, but it's there. Listen to some of what Rice wrote. Quote, The seven-year shadow has been removed by a jury. It will be an interesting experiment. It will be by his golf ability largely in the future that he rises or falls in any financial way after the opening guarantee. I would say that the answer is up to John Montague, up to his willingness to get back in top physical condition and rebuild the game I knew two or three years ago. If golf becomes only a sideline with him, if too many other interests take over his time and attention, he will undoubtedly lose much of the mystery glamour he has known. If he becomes just another golfer, he will lose much of his present prestige. End quote. Keep that one in mind, because this is a national story at this point. Everybody's talking about John Montague, and the mystery is almost at its peak right now because he got off. Seems like nothing bad can happen to this guy, and we're about to see what he can do. We are on the precipice of something, and Rice is saying, just know, you know precipice can go one of two ways. So, this exhibition happens in mid-November at a course called Fresh Meadow, and it is a disaster. The idea of the organizers was they were going to sell 6,000 tickets, but it proved to be so popular that that number was quickly ignored. And remember, these guys are going to be the only ones on the entire course. Some people said at that point it was the largest crowd that had ever appeared for a golf event in the U.S. The crowd was wild. It was a riot from the word go. The players were crowded. The people there weren't necessarily all golf fans. There was a lot of just kind of locals who were curious, so they didn't really know the etiquette. Players had to fight their way toward every ball. There were no ropes. And that started from the very first tee shot, which Montague hit into the right rough. They had to wait 15 minutes for somebody to clear out the people ahead so we could actually hit his approach into the green. Shot rolled off the green, but he chipped up. He made par. But as bad as that was, it was going to get worse. By the second hole, Ruth was already calling it worse than any World Series. And, you know, Ruth wasn't even getting the lion's share of attention. That belonged to Montague. The only way he could get to his ball was with a police escort. Literally two cops and six marshals walking him through the crowd, you know, clearing people ahead of him to wherever his ball was. Which, you know, that ball turned out often not to be the one he hit. Somebody would have stolen it and replaced it with a different one from their pocket. You know, a little souvenir. The concept of a fairway was non-existent. There were people everywhere in the fairway. At one point, Ruth got knocked to the ground by the stampede of people. And Montague, because of this, starts hitting toward adjacent fairways because at least there's grass there. At one point, he missed hitting a man in the head with an iron by a matter of inches. The man apparently walked out at exactly the wrong time, almost got brained. You know, it's a complete cluster. You know what? And on the ninth hole, after they each hit onto the green at the par three, the fans literally went onto the green and stood around the ball so they couldn't even see them. And that was it. They said, enough is enough. We are done here. Not even going to take these putts. The exhibition was over. 
before it reached the halfway point. Now, on one hand, nobody could have produced great golf under those circumstances. On the other, you know, the numbers are the numbers. Montague shot a 37 to Babe Ruth's 35, and those numbers were printed everywhere. And Bob Constein, a writer for the Mirror, he wrote something pretty predictive afterward. He wrote that Montague's reputation, quote, is unfortunately such that every time he fails to break par, a layer of his glamour and his mystery peels off. And that is going to be, you know, this bizarre day. It's going to be a harbinger of things to come. Two things become rapidly clear. The first is that the mystery is worth quite a lot. Now, when the mystery exists, everybody wants to solve it. Everybody wants to see the curiosity on a big stage. They want the mystery to clear up. But what they don't realize And what I think is the most fascinating lesson about maybe this entire saga is that the mystery is sometimes more potent than anything. And when you lose the mystery, well, the results better be incredible to sustain that level of interest and intrigue. Otherwise, it's not going to match it. You know, I don't know why I, I think of this now, but maybe a weird comparison, but a quote comes to mind. It is attributed to a French saying, I have no idea if the French actually say this, but that's the that's the attribution. But it's about love affairs, and the quote is, the best part of an affair is going up the stairs. In other words, the anticipation, the sense of not knowing what's coming, is often more powerful than whatever the reality becomes. So, now here we are, Montague is no longer with his mystery. We are up the proverbial stairs. You know, this is not too strange an analogy. And the second thing that's clear is that just being an okay golfer with flashes of brilliance is not going to be enough for him now that the mystery's gone. His golf has got to be exceptional, out of this world. He's got to compete and beat professionals. There's no longer any excuse. And if he can't do that, the interest of the people is going to leave him quicker than you can believe. He's got to do it fast. Because even at this point in American history, you know, attention spans are not that long if you can't deliver results. The Montague of late 1937 and ever after, who is now just a guy, is no match in intrigue for the shadowy Montague, the figure that existed before. And as you may be starting to realize from the fact that this is not a very well-known story today, right? I had never heard of Montague. I didn't even know about Montville's book until Joel Beale, a colleague, said, you know, you should check this out. It might make a good podcast. But as you may be starting to realize, you know, Montague never won any majors. His name is not in the annals of the great golfers. He never delivered on the promise. Not only that, he never even really came close. The rest of his life is at best a denouement. Use a fancy word, right? A downward action. And that downward action starts pretty quickly. Because Montague is now in his mid-30s. He's not old. He's not a spring chicken either. His youth is behind him. Hasn't played very much in the last couple years. You know, he had a court case taking his attention for quite a bit of time and there are plenty of signs that not only is he rusty but he's overweight he's an alcoholic you know there's not a ton of motivation there he gets home to hollywood tells the press he's going to practice for four or five hours a day going to take it very seriously going to try to compete for the british open for the u.s open and meanwhile a ton of sports writers not just grantland rice are writing these columns saying you know he's going to let everyone down unless he can deliver some amazing results So you have to imagine there's a lot of pressure on the guy, too. He's reading this stuff. As Montville wrote, quote, good would not be good enough. Great would be a disappointment. He had to be phenomenal, end quote. 
Under these circumstances, it's easy to see in hindsight that his chances of success were almost none. The unraveling starts just three days after the Flushing Meadows debacle. He plays Babe Ruth again in a quieter private round. You know, this is not supposed to be for public consumption. He's still getting his game back. But word gets out that Ruth beats him in a match six and five. And that Ruth, to do this, shot a 76. So you can imagine what Montague must have shot, right? Probably in the 80s. And when I look back at that story, you know, this may be a historical hot take. I don't really have any evidence for it. But I almost get the sense when that story comes out, for people who are really interested in John Montague, that might be the end. Crazy as that sounds, just a few days after this trial, the mystery, the balloon, you know, the bubble, whatever you want to call it, may have popped already. Because I think they're willing to forgive, you know, one kind of weird result. But when it comes out that Babe Ruth beat him, you know, by a lot. When he when Babe Ruth demolished him, shooting a 76, I think when you read that story, that's it. I just think that's it. I just think that the mystery of John Montague is over. And short of going out and winning three majors the next year, it seems like this story probably started to leave people's minds that quickly. Now, on a secondary note, again, there was this notion, you remember Bing Crosby says he's going to make a million dollars, and behind that concept was the idea that he would star in movies. Now, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the interest around him personally, to some extent. Like we said, there is charisma in the man. He's got Hollywood connections. But the minute the trial's over, all of this stuff pretty much evaporates. There was news that he signed a deal with Bing Crosby's brother. That was not true. You know, there may have been some complications with the Hayes office, which... Hayes office is a place, you know, determines at the time what is acceptable in Hollywood from a moral standpoint. They may have said quietly, you know, Montague is a criminal who got away with it. This guy is not desirable. Montville brings this up in his book. And it's not clear, you know, how explicit that was ever made, if it was ever a direct order. Uh, you know, Bing Crosby was going to cast him in one of his films. He was talked out of it by somebody. You know, the Hayes office publicly at the time said, look, individual acting choices are up to the producers. It's not up to us. But it seems like maybe they had some sway. But, you know, my read on this, I may be wrong here again, but my read on it is that the Montague bubble has already burst at this point. You know, maybe may have burst as soon as the verdict came in from the jury. In other words, you didn't really need to tell anyone not to cast the guy. You know, when it became clear his golf wasn't up to snuff, there just wasn't any interest. And you can't help but wonder, you know, if, you're, if you're like me, you can't help but wonder if there's a karmic element there. You know, like the universe saying, okay, you got away with it. You beat this guy almost to death, but we're not going to let you have your cake and eat it too. You're going to get off. The justice system is going to let you off, but there's always a price to be paid. In any case, whether you put any stock in that or not, he tries to get sponsorship from Spalding. Starts playing okay golf again. Like, you know, pretty good golf. But the Spalding reps, you know, sees as he spends time with him, this guy is a prodigious drinker. You know, his lifestyle is very wild. In fact, very expensive. They don't think they can afford him. It's not worth it. So 1937 ends, 1938 comes. He doesn't play for months in public. Doesn't try to qualify for the U.S. Open in 1938. Says it's too soon. Finally makes his debut in the summer in an exhibition match. He shoots a 77, worst score in the group. Misses a two-foot putt that would have won the match on 18. And that gives you a sense of where things are headed here. We're going to gloss over a lot of what comes next. There are you know good rounds mixed in there. Rounds in the 60s even, there are indications that this phenomenal golfer in his days of mystery wasn't a total invention, 
but he just doesn't have it consistently anymore. And he's clearly not willing to commit the time and energy to get in shape. You know, after that match, when he shoots a 77, a paper in Salt Lake City calls him a bum. One in San Francisco calls him a dud. The guy in Oakland writes that, you know, is the high-class duffer. And while those words may seem harsh, they're not as harsh as what came next, which is that everybody stopped paying attention. And throughout the exhibitions he played that year, you know, he'd say the scores don't matter. People who come out want to see trick shots, you know, that kind of thing. He starts telling people that he purposely seeks out the rough. You know, I hit it into weird spots to give the people what they want. Late in the year, he does sign a contract with Wilson Sporting Goods. Goes to the Philippines. You know, that trip is a disaster. He plays poorly. At one point, he actually, on a ship, he takes out golf balls and, you know, hits them at a Japanese warship. Uh, the the captain of the Japanese boat comes out. What's going on? You know, everybody's mad. Uh, the last thing Wilson wants is a, you know, international disaster. They back out of the sponsorship deal. You know, it's revealed at this point that he has a wife. He married a rich woman. That should come as no surprise. You know, he's this. That's the most predictable thing, maybe, about the Montague story that he can kind of work his way into that relationship. So he doesn't really have financial problems at this point. You know, in fact, the wife probably bankrolled a lot of his legal stuff. She told her brother at one point she sold some of her real estate to help him pay off everything. Clearly, he had put his personal charm to good use here. She had two kids of her own. She was a widow, kind of a Beverly Hills socialite. Her name was Esther Plunkett. So at least he's got this little bit of stability in his life because golf was abandoning him. In the Philippines Open, he finished 12th against a pretty weak field. And Montague knew how bad that was. He admitted it to sports writers when he came home. 1939. This is the one period in his life where he did commit himself briefly to getting in shape. Tried to qualify for the U.S. Open at a qualifier at Medina. Shot an 81 in the first round, and he would have shot an 83 in the second round, but he picked up his ball and walked off on the 18th hole. In 1940, he does qualify for the U.S. Open, even though he's not in shape anymore. He's let himself go again, but he shoots a 77-73 to make the U.S. Open at the qualifier. But what's remarkable about this is that just two years after his trial, already nobody cares. He's in a major championship, and it doesn't even register. It's barely written about. Grantland Rice, in fact, writes an entire preview of the tournament. Montague doesn't get mentioned once. This happens, the U.S. Open this year is at Canterbury Golf Club in Ohio. Montague shot an 80 and an 82. You know, basically like anyone else that you see qualify for these events from the, from the club pro ranks. One of the few writers to mention him afterward wrote that, quote, the almost non-existent gallery which followed him decided that the only mystery about Rugged John is how he managed to qualify. End quote. And that year, that U.S. Open was the only major he would ever play. To put a cap on it, in December of that year, 1940, the New Yorker wrote a piece about him and how he was more suited to a country club life than the professional game, how he'd made basically no money from golf since his trial, was out of the public eye. The title of that piece was, Where Are They Now? And as Montville points out in his book, this is just three years from the man being a major celebrity. You can get a sense of how things went from there by the fact that Montville's final chapter is called Hollywood, 1941 to 1972. Right? Everything that comes next in the last 30 years of his life, we can fit into one chapter here at the end. Plays a few tournaments. You know, one time he was with Johnny Weissmuller and George Zaharias. 
at a tournament. They're drunk late at night. He comes in and he flips the mattress Weissmuller is on. He flips him onto the ground while he's sleeping. And it's clear, you know, George Zaharias wakes up. It's clear, despite Zaharias warning him, saying don't do it, that he's going to try to do it to him too. So when he does try, Zaharias, who is a professional wrestler, lifts him up, holds him outside an open window, and tells him if he tries it again, he's going to drop him. And that's the kind of thing, you know, that Montague normally does to other people. doesn't have it done to him. In 1947, Montague's wife dies of cancer. He's not close with her two kids, mainly because he seems to have blown through all his wife's money or most of it. He gets arrested for drunkenness in 1948, has a heart attack in 1949, hospitalized again in 1954, gets in a car wreck after midnight in 1955. Maybe there's alcohol involved there. Playing golf less, gambling more. At this point in his life, he has all these business prospects that never quite pan out. His family back east learned to ignore his calls. You know, for a long time, this is somebody who never talked to his family. Now he calls them a lot, and they ignore him because when he talks to them, it means, of course, that he wants money. Needless to say, he never won a golf tournament. Sued Life magazine in 1956 for a story they wrote about golf con men. There was something in there he didn't like. He didn't win that. And in 1963, almost 60... He wrote to Bobby Jones from a hospital bed. You know, he and Bobby Jones had had some acquaintance through all this you know, famous people he knew. But Montague had been in the hospital for seven months after falling off a ladder, which resulted in a broken hip, broken pelvis, fractured coccyx. He's now in a wheelchair. And he asked Bobby Jones for some help with writing a memoir. He wants Jones to maybe hook him up with a writer, maybe an agent, you know, anything in the business. And as Montville said, this letter is a curiosity because the whole thing sounded like he was trying too hard, like he was kind of, you know, making himself and Jones out to be best friends. And the response from Jones was polite, but very short. And it basically said, you know, good luck with the book. Didn't offer any real help. Pretty much shut the door on further communication. And that was a sign of where he stood then. He got out of the hospital. He did get out. He walked again. Got back into his business schemes that never quite panned out. And in 1972, living in a motel in Studio City off welfare checks and Social Security, he died from a heart attack at age 68. In the obituary in the LA Times, they ran a photo of him as an older man lining up a putt with a guard rake, you know, still living off the old legend. Richard Arland, who remembers the actor who first met him in the public courses in LA, first kind of introduced him to this society, he gave the eulogy where... He bizarrely, you know, claimed that Montague had been on trial for, quote, killing a Chinese man who came at him with a meat cleaver, end quote. Not sure where he got that, but he brought that up over and over in the eulogy. It was very weird. He spoke a lot about his legal troubles more than maybe you should at a you know, man's funeral. But anyway, this, this kind of weirdness of it, maybe it was a fitting end to the entire strange story of John Montague. He is buried in Holy Cross Cemetery next to many of the celebrities he knew. You know, Arlen is one of them, Bing Crosby is another. Lee Montville ends his book with this fact. And Montville's last line, after all this, is just a single sentence, there are possibilities. And I've thought about that line, and I'm not sure exactly what it means. You know, is it a reference to the dreams of Montague's life that were never fulfilled? And maybe it's a reference to you know, potential afterlife in the company of these famous people? It seems far-fetched. Or if it's just a callback to the striving, you know, that Montague had done in his life, 
the incredible acts of transformation that reached a peak in the early 1930s, but were revealed as hollow, you know, in the exact moment when he seemed to have escaped his past, beat the legal rap. The man who was Laverne Moore, who robbed Ken Hanna's store and beat Matt Cobb almost to death, did die as John Montague. Like we said, he legally changed his name after the trial. But as far as the state was concerned, he became the character he had invented for himself as a boy on the streets of Syracuse. There are possibilities, indeed. But the story of Montague in the end for me is about how even the most daring escape artist, a chameleon of great ability and charisma, who made it farther than almost anyone else from his circumstances could, is ultimately limited the more he tries to shed whatever was essential about him. Like a lot of the great American stories, it is infused with this sense of optimism, of escape, of fantasy. But in the end, the illusion has to vanish. And the story of John Montague, ultimately, isn't about what you can escape, but about everything that you can't. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our songs today were Summer Delights by David Long and The World at War by The Necks. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out Golf Digest's weekly podcast, The Loop. We also have a podcast on golf instruction called Golf IQ, hosted by Luke Curdenin. That is also available everywhere and anywhere that you find podcasts. Thanks very much for listening. Have a great day. <laughs>